Ryan. I'm Joe Turner, and this is the City Manager Unfiltered Podcast, a podcast for city managers and other public sector executives. I have a guest with me who uh, I've been following for over a year now. Uh, his name's Tim Nowak. He is, uh, I, I don't I hope this doesn't sound too arrogant, Tim, but I'm going to, I, I kind of refer to you as the Joe Turner of the EMS uh, fire services uh, side of the coin, because we've been following each other now, I think over a year on LinkedIn, and you have a lot of content that is similar to mine in the sense that I target the city manager space, but you are a player in the EMS uh, fire space. And I'm really eager to have you on the podcast today to talk to city managers and other public sector executives, and even have a growing uh, audience of elected officials who follow the program about the impending crisis in EMS and fire services that you believe is coming to bear on the American uh, society. And uh, I'm eager to have you on here to talk about that and your experience. You're a practitioner, you're a consultant now. Please introduce yourself to the audience, Tim. Oh, thanks, Joe. I appreciate that. And and uh, rightfully so, I, I kind of see you as the, uh, the the same respect to me of you're probably the city manager equivalent of, of what I do on online, on, on LinkedIn, especially. So no, it's, it's great to be here. Great to chat with you. And I think it'll be a pretty you know fruitful and, and, and just good conversation overall. So I'll take a step back and uh, I'm, I'm Tim Nowak. So I, I've been involved in the fire and EMS industry for a bit over 20 years now. I actually started my career in, in uh, Wisconsin, jumped to, uh, well, in, in Green Bay, Wisconsin, started to uh, transition over to the other side of the state and worked in Minnesota for a short bit before going to Colorado and uh, living in Colorado Springs, but working in the Denver market within a hospital system, uh, working with medical directors, the physicians, the hospitals, number of EMS agencies doing EMS training and some quality stuff, uh, data management. I uh, eventually transitioned to uh, Florida and spent uh, an unpleasant year there. Just uh, the, the, the hot heat humidity is just it is not my <laughs> thing. So you making the move down there, I, I, I chuckle, but man, no, no way. Uh, so I, I did a year in Florida. I was a assistant chief for a county-based EMS agency, pretty large uh, population, about 440,000 or so, you know, not including the, the visitors that popped in a system that ran about 50,000 or so EMS calls a year. So did that and, and was part of the organization there and then eventually got into consulting full-time. I'd always been in, in some sort of consulting role, mostly on the training side, but was able to transition to a, a full-time position with a public consulting group, which works with a lot of uh, EMS agencies, especially throughout the country, doing cost reporting and working with Medicare ground ambulance data collection, uh, working with state Medicaid programs, and uh, and then doing the the traditional consulting work, which is feasibility studies, operational analysis, staffing plans, strategic planning, station studies, you know, the whole thing. So anything related to fire and EMS uh, studies, that that's you know really our our wheelhouse and what we specialize in. Awesome. Uh, so I've been doing that for two and a half years now, and and you know really love that. It's it's, it's a great spot. It's it's always uh, difficult transitioning from chief to consultant. And I would imagine the same thing from city manager to consultant. It, it's, it's very different. You have to wear a different hat, but like if, if you're, if your head can get into that game and, and, and think at that just different wavelength, uh, it, it's very, very rewarding. So, you know, I, uh, I, I don't have one patch on my shoulder from one organization or one department anymore. I, I kind of consider myself as having, a number of different, you know, snippets of a patch uh, right. on my shoulder and, and working with agencies really throughout the country. 
Uh, so it's, it's pretty fun stuff. Awesome. You know, one of the things I really like about your content, Tim, is that you are not afraid to have some strong opinions, uh, some contradictory opinions or go out against the grain. Uh, you have some interesting dialogue and some uh, some robust conversations in your comments section, which I applaud and I commend uh, because I try to aim for that myself. And, I don't, and you don't strike me as a guy who's trying to have a hot take just for the sake of having a hot take. I think you like to have some interesting discussions, but you also have some strong viewpoints. And I think that's what's helped uh, increase your or help grow your audience and your platform on LinkedIn and so forth and so on. So I really love your authenticity and I'm really excited to dive into this discussion. Um, yeah, I appreciate that. And, and you know, LinkedIn's a fun spot. I've been, I've been on there for, uh, it's probably like seven or so, eight years. And, and, you know, I've grown up to just shy of about 19,000 um, connections and, you know, by no means don't, don't even know a fraction of them probably even connected with, with some of the you know city managers and, and county administrators, you know, that are, part of this podcast and, and hope to, you know, join that and, and build up that number as well. But it, it's always fun, like getting to some conferences. Now I bump into people that, you know, I've, I've been knowing, knowing online for, for years or chatting with back and forth. So it's nice to actually see them face to face instead of that, you know, one little one inch, you know, picture or whatever on, on, on the, on your phone. But, you know, LinkedIn's a good spot where, you know, especially in my industry that so many people like to complain about stuff. Yes. They, they have something to say. But they just need the flood to gate to kind of open up a little bit. And, and I, you know, I started out with LinkedIn just having questions. You know, I was trying to get into the administration and, and chief-oriented space myself. So, you know, what better way of, of plugging into and, and finding the people who were doing it and had great reputations as it was, getting connected with them, asking some questions, and trying to get their perspective on it. And and from there, it just it, it grew. And I, I actually eventually published a, a magazine for about two and a half years uh, that was specifically designed for uh, EMS director professional development. And just the, the questions continued and polls and discussions, yeah. you know, from there. And, and yeah, you know, I, I absolutely have an opinion and, and I think a pretty strong one. Uh, pretty much all of us within this administrative side are, are strong, you know, type A personalities. Uh, but on the same token, you know, I, I am humble and cognizant enough to know that, you know, it's my opinion. Right. There are times where I can be wrong, but there are also times where other people are just wrong too. And, yeah, you know, and I, I don't want to, you know, I'm not there to call them out, but at the same time, certainly am, am not afraid to, you know, express my opposition in, in a peaceful, civil manner. And, and right, that's right. the fun part. Yeah, I think uh, LinkedIn is definitely an underutilized and underappreciated platform, and I've really enjoyed my experience on it now for a little over a year. Yeah. Um, but, you know, uh, funny, before we jump into discussion, like, you know, we're going to talk about the impending crisis and sort of how we got here and how we get out of it as we move through this podcast episode. But one of the funny things I wanted to share with you is, you know, me, I grew up, grew up in Southern California. And so in Southern California, there's no really no such thing, in my opinion, as a volunteer fire department. You know, everyone you know pays their taxes and you call 911 and the fire and the police department, they show up. And so when I moved to uh, Kansas and became a city administrator for the first time, it kind of blew me away that you had small towns that didn't have 24 mm-hmm. seven police coverage. And they literally have volunteer fire departments and where people literally sleep at home at night and they get a call on their phones and then they got to rush to the fire station to go answer a call. I know you have some thoughts on volunteers and, and fire departments or, or in, and the like, but can you maybe sort of put a little finer point on volunteer firefighters and paramedics and EMS across the country and, and how important and what's at stake here when we, as mm-hmm. we move forward in this conversation? 
Yeah, you know, so the the volunteer industry in general, and and there are arguably there's more volunteers than there are career firefighters, EMTs, you know, whatever uh, providers throughout there. The hard thing is though is you know part of the numbers behind that that that, that are attempted to be tracked at least I I think are getting to the point where they're almost anecdotal, and and it comes down to what the definition of a volunteer is, and and what many departments call volunteer really, especially from the city manager perspective or the administrative perspective, are no longer volunteers. They're actually employees. You know, they're paid in some way or form. But at any rate, you know, starting with this volunteer mentality of, you know, they, they're in an unstaffed environment. Hopefully, at the very least, there's a schedule of, of you know, 24 hours in a day. Someone is on the schedule and someone has committed to be, basically being the sober adult that's going to respond and, and go to the call. That, that doesn't exist every place, especially the more rural you go, the likelihood of a, a schedule even existing is less and less. So there is no guarantee that someone will even show up, basically rolling the dice and hoping that today nothing happens. And sometimes, you know, for some agencies that's been working for so long, they've been fortunate, but the, the time is running out. You know, volunteers have a great heart. Sometimes that can get the best of them because the, the heart might be there. But the physical ability or the compliance with regulation isn't there. But you know, darn it, they're a good person and they and they show up. So why don't we just you know, and, let's and, give and, them a break? And, and isn't there isn't having someone there better than not having someone there, right? Uh, you know, that's one it, of the things we wrestle with. Yeah, yeah, and 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 it's to the point sometimes where no, like the answer is is no. You're, you're better off not having anyone there than having some of these people there. And, you know, not to target anyone directly, but that is sometimes the reality of the situation. There, There's argument within the industry, too, when it comes to training standards. So let, let's take EMT, for example. To, to become an EMT, and every state's a little bit different, but for the most part, uh, becoming an EMT is somewhere around 140 to 200 hours of training. So, you know, what started as a 60-hour course in the 90s and 80s, has transitioned to, you know, upwards of 200 hours in some states. Some argue that, well, well, I'm just a volunteer. Why do I have to go through all this stuff? Well, because clinical care doesn't matter. Patient care doesn't matter if you're a volunteer or not. Chest pain is chest pain. Heart attack is heart attack. Nausea and vomiting is nausea and vomiting. It doesn't matter where you live and who you are or any demographic. doesn't even matter at all. The care, the standard of care needs to be there. And so you need to have this training. Uh, even on the firefighter side, uh, some states allow uh, firefighters, someone to be called a firefighter uh, with as little as like 30 hours of training. And, and then, you know, an extra 30 hours will, will get you to qualify to be interior qualified where you can, you know, put on a mask and go inside. But man, the, the amount of danger and risk associated with that for a hobby, you know, some career department or some volunteer departments treat this like it's a career and they do a damn good job at it. Yeah. Um, I mean, they got some really passionate, dedicated individuals oh, yeah. and, you know, and like in my community, you know, they would get something like $20 a run, right? So they, yeah. would, they would answer the call at two o'clock in the morning, come to the station, go fight a fire or answer, an, you know, an, a car accident call or something like that. And they're getting 20 bucks for the call. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're not getting paid a lot. They're not, they're no. not getting paid what they're worth. And uh, it's a very challenging environment. And, you know, as we lead this conversation into a discussion about the impending crisis, where I think part of this is going to go is uh, at least in the feedback I've received from 
the volunteer firefighters in my departments that I've overseen as a city administrator in Kansas is that you're just seeing a decline in the number of volunteers who are mm-hmm. willing to answer that call for a variety of reasons. Is that is that in a nutshell the issue or is it more complex and convoluted than that? You know, I, I think that is a it's a very obvious symptom. I, I think that there are some root issues and causes to the, the collapse that really is, is actively happening or in some agencies has already happened. They're just fortunate that the call volume is so low that they can just sneak under the radar without it having an impact. And luckily no one's been hurt or, you know, or killed. So the, the, the collapse that's there, especially with declining volunteer numbers, it, it's, I think we're all, you know, getting to this point now where we're, where we're realizing that there is not going to be an improvement. There was always hope, and you know, 90s was the the beginning of some of this, but things got better. You know, 9/11 happened, and things got better uh, with regard to volunteerism and you know, answering the call passion. of duty, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. But when that went away, you know, I, I I kind of joked and thought here, well, not joked, but like, you know, thought that with COVID, if anything. COVID, bringing people home, working from home, not having to be in their office, being able to be home, volunteer some time, answer a call with a pager, whatever. If fire and EMS agencies in the rural environments couldn't drastically improve their numbers because of people working from home, then the hope is gone. And, and, and that's really where we're at. And I think everyone is finally now admitting that, that the hope is gone. And, and while this is an anecdotal number, I can say at least from from one project I recently uh, was involved in, took a look at you know every EMS agency in the entire state and and pulled people, look at the numbers of of how many volunteered or how many were involved, and for the most part, generally speaking, out of any agency that existed out there for the the ambulance service, most of the agencies were really held up by ten percent of the roster. Or maybe even twenty percent. It's like it's now, like classic eighty twenty rule, right? Yeah, eighty percent of the work's being done by twenty percent or ten percent of the volunteers, right? Yep. And 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 the crappy thing is that if that roster consists of twelve people, that means that two or three people are running the entire roster. Right. And odds are, in some of those environments, that two of them are already married. So you know, one leaves, one retires, one dies, one whatever, and you're going to lose the other one. And now you lost ninety percent of your workforce by losing two people. So you so you talk about collapse, right? And that's a pretty strong word. Like what yeah. what does this mean? What is this when, when you say there's a crisis, there's a collapse, there's an impending collapse or can you put can you put that sort of in a clear picture of what that means and how city managers and other um, public sector executives and, and elected officials who are listening to this podcast, what does that mean for them in plain English when you say there's a collapse coming? Yeah. No, that, that's a good question. And, and when? Yep, and and you know, it one one thing I'll say is you know our our industry my industry is is notoriously been good at at this end of the world you know what if kind of bullshit stuff um, you know seconds matter and seconds count and you know if if we can save one life and what if we we, we thrive on this this mantra and it's just scare tactic. Is it, it almost really crying is. wolf? Is it almost a yeah. crying wolf deal? Okay, it, right. it is. I can hear all and, the elected officials who have unions in their in their cities saying, "Amen, yeah. amen." But yeah, it, you know, and, and and if 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 seconds matter, if seconds whatever, then then let's look at your response times and your shoot times, and 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 then we'll talk about how seconds matter. Now, yes, there are times where seconds do matter. So okay, but we're talking about less than one percent of times. But in general, we're good about this whole 
blow up the scenario kind of thing. Um, but I, I, I feel very confident in saying that, you know, we are we are facing collapse and collapse means exactly that. It, it is not going to exist the way that it was. It's a massive crumble. It's not going to, you're going to call for help and there is going to be no one and it's coming. You know, is there a solid answer or, or, or time frame? No, I, I think that we are. Some agencies already already have collapsed and already have failed. I was um, just going to say because you're saying there's collapse is coming, but that means there has to be some that have already collapsed, right? Do you have any examples, yeah. or can you cite some examples of where this has already sort of happened? Yeah, and you know, because that's a scary proposition, right? To think that uh, at two o'clock in the morning, uh, mm-hmm. my husband's having a heart attack, or my my wife fell down the stairs, or something, and no one's going to call to yeah. save my spouse, right? Now, now, one thing I will say is, you know, within EMS, especially, we, we, we talk about or we, we always say that if you've seen one EMS agency, then you've just seen one EMS agency. I think that's the biggest line of bullshit that we tell people. And I'm saying okay. this as a consultant, where if we've if you see one EMS agency, if you look at one of them or, you know, fire department for that matter, you likely are seeing the remnants of 5000 of them. Now, there's roughly 22, 24,000 EMS agencies in the country. There's vastly more, probably close to 100,000 fire departments in the country. And so if you look at just one of them, no one is so special and so unique that no one else is like them. They, they all have the same problems. You name one department and within 15 minutes, I'll, I'll find you 10 departments that are damn near exactly the same thing. So, you know, when, whenever chiefs say, oh, if you've seen one EMS agency, no, it's, it's bullshit. Uh, so their problems are not so special and unique to them that no one else has them. And with the collapse that, that's going on, there, there are different trends that are happening East Coast. And by East Coast, I'm referring more to New England okay. versus, the, versus the Southeast versus Midwest versus West. And so, so there are regional West, differences. Oh yeah, and and West, I mean everyone but California, because California is different. There are some differences, and and the the crises, the collapse is hitting everyone a little bit differently right now, and I think a lot of that comes down to the the mindset of volunteerism, which is vastly different in New England compared to anywhere else, uh, and then you know the funding structures that exist too. So in, in New England, uh, in, in like Pennsylvania right now is getting hard hit and it's hitting the media, at least with, with this regard to agencies shutting down. Now, shutting down isn't necessarily a bad thing. Closing up their doors is not a bad thing. Hold, hold on, Tim. What does that mean, though? I mean, if they're shut down, who's answering the call? I, we mean, it's not a bad yeah. thing. That sounds, like yep. a, that sounds like doomsday to me. Yeah. So the issue is that in many respects, there are too many ambulance services and there are too many fire departments. Now, I say that to say that there are too many agencies, not people. Got you. So we take a state like Connecticut, for example. So Connecticut, breaking that down, Connecticut has 169 municipalities. There are 310 fire departments in Connecticut. So that means that there's, you know, on average, what, you know, roughly two. Probably two per each, yeah. Pre, yeah, and, and sometimes that means that one you know big city has their own department, and that means that a medium-sized community of 20,000 people has five fire departments. That means five organizations, five structures, five everything, likely with apparatus that they probably don't need. 
and, and just overkill because it's always been that way. We always had this side of the street. You got that side of the street. There's these little fiefdoms. Right. So is that these... particularly strong in the Northeast? The fiefdoms? Oh, is, that, is, that, is, that, is that, or is that, is that dominant in the Northeast versus other parts of the country? Very, very much. Very, okay. very much. It, it certainly exists all over the country, but it's very prominent in, in the Northeast. And I would say probably from, uh, you could probably draw a line from Virginia and Northeast. Maine might be, you know, semi-excluded from that, but Virginia sure, certainly through, you know, New Hampshire, Vermont, it's, it's very common. Okay. Uh, once you hit North Carolina, there's a stark difference, at least how, how EMS is operated all the way down south and then certainly westward. But yeah, the Northeast right now is getting hit because there are just too many agencies. There don't need to be that many agencies. Okay. They need the people. And and half the problem is that out of five fire departments serving one small township, uh, you know, let's say each each department has a roster of ten uh, of twenty people. So you would think by math, five times twenty is a hundred. Right. Likely though, it's only sixty-five people, because one guy is working for two departments, volunteering for two departments. Ah, got you. This girl okay. is working for three departments. It, you know, so it, it, it sounds like there's this abundance, but there's not because there's so much, you know, crossing over, which means at the same time then that that one person on these two different departments, which are primarily volunteers, sometimes they're uh, private nonprofits, so 501c3s, or they might be municipally over, you know, owned or, or, or operated. Uh, but now this person needs five types of insurance, you know, from the organizational standpoint, right. five insurances, five workers' compensations, five sets of t- uh, turnout gear. You know, it's 2,500 bucks a pop, radios, pagers, five of this, five of that. You know, so there's this multiplication of resources and, and, and it's not just duplication. There's triplication, quadruplication. Right. right. And, and it's just unnecessary when if some of these places would just come together them shutting their doors is not bad gotcha because tracking you there now. there is still the the call is still going to get answered for some of these places it's just going to be by somebody else and so once those agencies can get over the fact that it's not just their patch or their their colored fire truck whatever it is black red green blue orange you know that it's not their you know hose and ladder hook and ladder company whatever stuff that's going to it it's this bigger picture some agencies need to shut their doors and that's the part of the solution here is at least some agencies need to shut their doors so that something bigger and better can happen so that an gotcha. economy of scale can exist you know sometimes that leads to career staffing sometimes it doesn't doesn't always have to but regardless the redundancy and okay. the unnecessary and the fighting just so needs to so- go away so Tim, we have two instances here, or two examples. We have a situation where we have a loss of volunteers, right? People who are not entering the service, are not entering the mm. profession, so it's on a volunteer on a volunteer basis. And then you also have maybe a need for consolidation of excessive number of departments, right? Mm-hmm. Are there, what else is leading to a crisis in or collapse in our fire EMS service throughout the country? Yeah, yeah. And and on the point of volunteerism too, you know, undoubtedly, you know, generational, whatever, whatever you want to call it stuff, Gen Z, Y, Millennium, right, whatever right. deals. Yeah, no one's going to volunteer for this crap anymore because they don't have time. Yeah, yeah. We've got full-time jobs. We've got to do stuff. We have families. We have commitments, soccer practice, whatever. And so we can't just volunteer anymore. We, we need to get paid for it. 
for what, what's going on or just don't even commit at all and don't even sign up. So so that certainly is real and, and it's not going away. It's not going to get better. You know, one of the, the biggest things, especially on the EMS side of the house that, that is really crippling it is the funding aspect of thing. So EMS, which at the national level is overseen by the Department of Transportation. At state levels, most EMS agencies at the state level are overseen by like the Department of Health. And, and then it breaks down even from there. So with funding mechanisms though, the fire service is a bit older than the EMS industry. EMS has been around since what, the 60s, the white paper, whatever existed then, gaining prominence in the 70s and then 80s, starting to actually formalize and look like something in the 90s, and then becoming more structured, organized, even career developing in, into the, the, the 2000s. So the issue though, is that the funding behind EMS is, is very much reactionary and it's half-assed. So most EMS agencies are funded by billing patients and primary payers consist of Medicaid, Medicare, private insurance or, or out-of-pocket pay. Uh, Medicaid, Medicare, you know, depending on where you live, the percentage that's covered as far as the population, you know, ranges anywhere from 50, 60% to 70, 80%. Florida, for example, uh, snowbird kind of thing. So you can you could expect 70% Medicaid, Medicare population there versus a ski town in Colorado where Medicaid, Medicare population might even be you know 40% uh, combined for the two of them. The issue here is, is that uh, when ambulance services bill, just because they bill something doesn't mean they're going to get paid that. So you go to a doctor, for example. Right. I uh, see so your doctor, your PA, nurse practitioner, whatever. And you get a bill and it's for a thousand dollars. Okay. Well, insurance is going to pay this amount of money. You owe your deductible, your out of pocket, whatever stuff. And then you're on the hook for the rest of it. In the EMS side of the house, when it comes to Medicaid and Medicare, you can bill a thousand dollars, let's say Medicare uh, on, on most patients is going to pay roughly about $242 for that patient. Okay. Uh, you know, upwards of maybe 400 depending on the type of call and what was all done, but either way, they're, they're certainly not paying $1,000, even though it's what you're billing. Then you're stuck with this $700 gap or more, and you can't do anything about it. You can't build on top of that. You can't try to you know balance your sheet uh, and, and balance bill these patients. It's, it's against the law. So you're stuck with just that crappy amount. So $200 for this, this call doesn't pay for anything. You know, we, we get reimbursed and I use air quotes for that, uh, we get reimbursed for our work. But that reimbursement is by no means compensation. And that's what we should be. When you say compensation, you mean it's not recovering the entire cost of that no. run, right? The actual run yeah. is not, the, the cost of that run is far more than $242 or whatever the Absolutely. case may be, right? Yeah. So how does that cost get made up then? Yeah. So then, you know, any gap that's there, and it depends on the agency now, public, you know, oriented ones where city managers, uh, village administrators, or whatever would be involved, then now it's it, it relies on the tax base. So you've got to somehow, you know, it's part of your budget. So you've got to build that in. If you're contracting with a nonprofit agency, for example, you might be paying a contract fee to them, or uh, many of them still may not have a contract fee with your municipality, particularly like a, like a township or, or, or village, just on the smaller level. Uh, so they get by by other donations or pancake breakfasts and bake sales and other stupid crap to try to nickel and dime their way up to cover right. their costs. 
Now, with them being primarily volunteer, and I say volunteer when they may not actually be volunteer by IRS definition, but when they're volunteer in nature, luckily that overhead amount is you know not super high, typically. Right. But uh, but again, people aren't going to these agencies anymore. They're they're just they're you can try to create more EMTs and paramedics, but it it doesn't matter. Uh, because the EMTs and paramedics, for the most part, they get created, want to get paid and have a job. Right. And, and they're not going to go to the the volunteer small little places. So the, the small places on their own, more and more, just can't exist. And and if you try to maintain them on your own, the need for tax funding really just has to be there. You know, whether it's from the municipal standpoint or, you know, we're seeing growth in popularity with special taxing districts. So, you know, ambulance authorities or fire protection districts. And, and, and that at least, you know, changes the, the game a little bit. Tax-based funding really is is, is kind of where things need to be. Uh, it, it's a service that if you want it, that you have to pay for it. Yeah, yeah. And, and so, the, the, hard, well, the, the hardest thing about the industry is that with a low call volume, that means that, you know, you're, you're not going to be responding a whole lot. So we have to accept the fact that we have to pay for readiness and pay for people to be willing and, and there to respond. So, you, you know, you're still going to get billed and that's to supplement the tax part. But that's that's really the the trend of where it's got to go is is it's got to be tax funded at the local level. It's a local problem. You know, it's an interesting thing. And I, I don't, don't want to get this conversation derailed off topic per se, but, you know, you talked about low call volume, right? And so, you know, I was working in a small bedroom community, my first state administrator gig outside of Wichita. And uh, we actually were split into two counties. One uh, south side of our city was actually in Sedgwick County, which is where Wichita's at. You know, I met one day with the uh, EMS director of Sedgwick County and he went through and gave me a uh, sort of a dissertation a little bit on EMS and talked about, well, there's even, you know, call atrophy or atrophy. If you have a uh, EMS staff who's not getting the call volume, then they're not really getting exposure to the the repetition, the rep, so to speak, and that their skills can decay. And so he was explaining to me that even in a, a you know, the county, Cedric County, we, you know, we got, you know, I don't know how many people are in Cedric County, maybe 600,000 or more. I, I'm not sure. You know, you'd have a rotation of the EMS staff from the high, even the higher call volume stations around the county uh, into the lower and back and forth so that they would get that rotation in the skill set. And I think that's another challenge that you face when you're in a small, a small community is if you're trying to chat, first of all, it's hard to attract talent because you can't pay the same hourly wages that they can get in a larger community. But then if you're trying to also attract the younger talent, they can't get the call volumes that they want in order to really sharpen their skill sets fresh out of the, the academy or, or what have you. Is that, is that a fair um, explanation of it all? Oh yeah, absolutely. And, and then, and then you, you throw on top of that, you know, fire-based ambulance service systems, uh, particularly those that require all their people to be paramedics. Right. Um, so, so every person on the fire engine, three or four people, plus, you know, on the ambulance, skill degradation is, is a real thing of, you know, trying to get uh, intubations in and, and, you know, IV access, even just medications. There's litigation now, uh, two paramedics are found guilty on manslaughter. So like there, there's, there's bad stuff that's happening in the industry. 
So, um, so, so Tim, we've, we've talked about sort of, we've identified that there's a problem, right? And mm-hmm. as far as this crisis that's coming uh, that, that you would, that you're putting forth and we didn't really get into a time frame of when that's coming, but you think mm-hmm. that's literally on the horizon, like within the next yeah. couple of years, you're going to see significant movement on that front, right? Almost it's going to crystallize across the country, the national landscape, and you're going to see a, almost a, a national awakening to this crisis, right? Yeah. And you assign that to a decrease in volunteerism. Uh, we talked about the need to consider consolidate all these different agencies and also issues with the funding sources. Are there any other aspects that are leading to this crisis that are, or contributors to this crisis that we need to talk about and unpack for the sake of this discussion? It, you know, the funding part is is a big thing. And, and I, I had some predictions kind of going into the past couple of years and, and, and some of them are, are starting to happen, which is unfortunate and kind of, kind of Cassandra's freaky. I think that 2030 is going to be the big year where things are just going to massively collapse. And, and I'm not talking small scale. I'm talking massively, it's it just, it's not going to exist. But the framework of that is, is starting with a couple of big things that are happening within the industry right now. One of the things that's, that's surrounding the industry, trying to address the, the reimbursement, the, the pay structure stuff, because uh, many commercial insurance, uh, insurance companies thrive off of whatever CMS or Medicare, Medicaid set for, for the pay rate. So some of them stick steadfast to that. Others, you know, deviate a little bit and pay more. So one, one of the major things going on within the industry right now is that ambulance services throughout the country uh, have to report all of their costs associated to doing business to Center for Medicare. And they're analyzing that. And, you know, the hope is that they will realize that, holy crap, we are two hundred forty some dollars is not enough, right? Yeah, yeah it's not yeah. enough. We we actually should be paying them, you know, seven, eight hundred, nine hundred, or a thousand dollars per call. That's the hope. Uh, you know, I, I was. I think we're all optimistic that that was going to be happening. I'm I'm losing my optimism in that actually happening. And and one of the big things of, of why I'm losing that optimism is that 2019 is when this started. So 2019 is when CMS rolled out this Medicare cost reporting with the intent of analyzing how much does it cost to do this. You know, service, and that's every agency from, you know, you run ten, you know, ambulance calls a year to you run a hundred thousand or a million ambulance calls a year. So, itty bitty, middle of nowhere, all the way through New York City, the whole spectrum is being analyzed. So that was the start of 20, uh, 2019. Also, in twenty nineteen, uh, a pilot project came through called ET three, which is the Emergency Treatment Triage and Transport, or Trios Treatment and Transport, I should say, uh, in that order, uh, or ET3. And, and so that project was designed to look at ambulance. The, the, the solution right now is you only get paid if you transport a patient to the hospital. Not all patients need to go to the hospital. That's you know, correct. ED over, overcrowding, that kind of stuff happens. So how can EMS providers provide a service, provide medical care, not just transport, because Medicare sees us as transporters. We're not classified as medical providers. We're transport. We're classified as transporters. That's we're one of the taxi. most. That's one of the stupidest things I've ever heard. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> and so so we are not considered. So, I'm sorry, Tim. So we just yeah. you guys just load up a you guys load up a patient in the back and just said, hey, hold on, we're gonna get you to the hospital, and that's it. There's no yep. no no and, cares provided. <laughs> and, and and mind you, as a paramedic, I have you know roughly two thousand hours of training. Um, I can do literally everything that can be done in the first 10 minutes of an emergency room, everything, the exact same stuff, aside from cracking open a patient's chest and physically pumping on their heart, 
can do all the exact same stuff in the first 10 minutes uh, of an emergency department. Uh, but you know, I'm not considered a medical provider in CMS's eyes. I'm a, I'm a transporter. I'm a point A to point B person. So this ET3 initiative, uh, a selected amount of agencies throughout the country applied for it. And uh, the intent was analyze, okay, what can be done to intercept us on the front end? And, and can patients go other places? Can they go to clinics? Or can treatment be adequately provided at home, therefore not going to the hospital? Or, or saving, at the scene, right? Yeah. At the scene. I mean, it's just, yep. yeah. yeah. And, and saving thousands of dollars in, you know, unnecessary emergency department bills and readmissions and whatever. So there was hope with that. And then, and then what happens? COVID happens. And that's like the, the playground of, of opportunity for treat at home. And so they opened up and became very flexible with their, their guidelines, allowed for some extra billing to happen. Well, just a few months ago, they shut the program down, canceled it, and, and it's dead in its tracks, no longer being analyzed, no longer being looked at. And so I, I see that as a significant problem, probably to the point where, uh, and, and again, I've lost my optimism in CMS increasing our rates as a result, because they're not seeing the benefit really of us in the clinical space. So uh, that's a significant problem. So I so, think that- so if I'm under, if I'm understanding this correctly, right, and I'm not trying to get hmm. tinfoil hat conspiracy theory or anything like that, but in a strange way, <laughs> aren't these small departments incentivized to basically take patients to the hospital no matter yeah. what? Yeah, but basically, yeah, that, yeah, that's the only way they get paid. Yeah, and there's, you know, a couple of billing opportunities out there, but many of them aren't even taking advantage of that. Uh, so, yeah, for the most part, um, you're, you're only getting paid if you transport. So you're, you're not making money. What I think is going to be happening is that roughly in 2025, 2026, when, when CMS is done with this anal analysis of agencies and they come out actually with their findings, recommendations, I, I don't think we're going to have an, a, a spiked increase in reimbursement like we're hoping for. It's going to stay, you know, we'll get instead of a 4% or 6% increase, uh, we'll get a 15, 20% increase in the call it a day. Like a one-time, so, like a one-time Band-Aid, right? But it's not yeah. going to solve the problem. Yeah. Yep. And, and so that will just be the icing on the cake of crippling the industry. And, you know, what we had hoped for will just be killed. It'll be dead. And so the only viable solution then going forward is going to be tax base. It's going to be direct funding from, from tax source. Well, so, this is, so this, you might be getting a little ahead of me. So is this the, basically the answer then is that the only way mm -hmm. to solve this crisis is that there has to be a complete reevaluation and a paradigm shift in how these agencies are funded. Is that literally the only solution that you see on the horizon? I, unfortunately. Yeah. And, and I think, I think it's to the point where while we're relying on Medicare, Medicaid, insurance funding now, I, I think it's almost to the point where we have to prepare to fund ambulance services as if there is no other source, as, this, as if there's no other source of income for billing, period, because uh, I think it's just going to cripple. Uh, and I hope it doesn't. I hope I'm wrong, but I, I have this fear that it's going to cripple. And, and so like fire departments right now, fire departments, you know, don't make money. They, they're, a, they're a cost. Police departments don't make money. They're a cost minus, you know, tickets and fines, whatever. Uh, fire departments, they're, the amount of fines or fees that are associated with their pay maybe for a month of electricity bill. So basically they're, they're, they're a complete payout, you know, right. uh, non-money generator from the, from municipal standpoint. And I think ambulance services are going to become that where uh, they're just going to have to be paid for. 
part of this this whole thing that's that's messing things up right now too is that in in most states police services are required by law uh, you, you have to have some sort of police coverage whether it's sheriff city police whatever your own township you've got to have some sort of police coverage you also have some sort of fire coverage and there can be pockets in the country here and there but for the most part this exists in every state where you've got to have some sort of fire coverage uh, now it, it can be a, a a volunteer department that has no schedule and has three people on the roster but on paper that exists as fire coverage right as far as ems goes and, and this 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 term essential service which which gets thrown around that essential service designation only exists in about a dozen and a little bit more states in the country now really that that term is an unfunded mandate because again you could have a volunteer department that has two people on the roster and unscheduled and to say that yes you have ambulance coverage doesn't you know that, that, that's all that's required in most states by law but the reality is that you you just you don't have you don't have a service on paper you do but you don't in some of these places and, and so i think that the only way that our industry my industry is going to survive is, is that it needs tax funding uh it sucks it, it adds more burden but uh I think that we have to be prepare ourselves to be 100% tax funded, uh, even potentially without any reimbursements in the future. That we're a few years away from that one, but we've got to be tax funded. Uh, so it's not going to survive. Uh, okay, so let's let's just let's assume that your theory or your thesis is correct, and that's the only way is through a tax funding, right? Mm. Are there any particular structures or types of funding or or whether it's special districts or a special sales tax or something dedicated. I'm a, are you referring to maybe a dedicated tax for that specific mm -hmm. purpose or just generally out of the general fund? What, what's, what's your, what's your thought process as far as the, the most fruitful or beneficial way of setting this up for EMS and fire as we move into the future? Because yeah. right now, because the, the reason why I ask is because to my knowledge, I would venture to guess maybe I'm, maybe I'm completely mis misguided here but you know 90 plus percent if not 99 percent of all fire of all police departments are funded by the general fund there isn't like a special mm -hmm. tax per se for the police department right probably probably not no there, right. there's you know aside from uh cell phone coverage whatever percentage tax and blah blah uh yeah it's, it's general fund same thing with most fire departments is going to be general fund correct ems in many respects isn't even on that that payroll unless you have an existing contracting fee uh for services provided Tying a lot of this together, there are too many ambulance services. There are too many fire departments. There's probably even too many police departments for that matter, but that's not my expertise. I'm not going there. So there's too many departments. We, we still need coverage across the, you know, across the board. So we need consolidation of sort or merging, whatever it is, shared services, whatever you want to call it. There needs to be coming together, building an economy of scale and building a structure so that yes in the middle of this rural environment where you will never ever on your own become a career department you will never ever on your own have full-time staffing you can't afford it you can't find the people to come work for you you will be a revolving door it, it will never ever work we need to find a way to make it somehow work where they can at least have some sort of equitable care understanding that you live in a rural environment and it's going to take a little bit longer for someone to get here but you're paying for someone to be here. The only way that's going to exist and the only way that we can build an economy of scale is if there's some sort of regionalization, consolidation, merging, shared service, whatever. 
And where, where it seems to work best from the funding standpoint is you got a couple of options. We look at sustainability throughout the industry. And, and you know, sustainability isn't just recruitment and retention problems. It's not just funding problems. It, it comes down to two things, I think, uh, that are the root causes, which is the way that places are organized and the way that they deploy or the way or how they respond. So from the organizational standpoint, which directly impacts the city managers, the town you know, administrators, village administrators, county administrators, whoever, the, the organizational standpoint have a couple of options. Either the big guy has the service, owns the service, and then everyone contracts with them. That can work and that, that's done, you know, it's, it's common. Oftentimes the hardship with that is that the small guys then feel as though their voice is not heard. The big guy just, you know, gets his way all the time. We're, we're stuck with how they do it. I've even had some fire chiefs say that, you know, you're getting what you pay for and, and that's all you're getting. Deal yeah. with it. Yeah. Yeah. My former department, the, the, the chief said that with some municipalities when they merged in, he said, you're, you're getting what you pay for and that's it. And that's a bad attitude, but it exists and it happens. And I'm sure, you know, this happens with public works, with other shared services too. In some environments though, it works just fine. And if it's working, great. Where the most feasible, cohesive environment seems to be existing in, in, in my side of the realm is in the special taxing districts where you separate things from municipal government and, and you, you become your own, uh, where you become your own ambulance taxing district or ambulance service district or ambulance authority or fire protection district, whatever the terminology is, you know, in your locale where, you know, you no longer have the elected, you know, town supervisors or village, you know, village electeds, whoever, you no longer have the same body of elected people uh, trying to, to, to fight and get their way uh, or city administrators for that matter. Uh, you, you create your own board, you're on the tax roll, just like the schools are on the tax roll, just like water utility and whatever else is on the tax roll, and you exist as your own entity. And what that affords agencies to do is, is to exist across multiple borders without any favoritism. Now, you, you know, the, you have to be smart and you have to still build an agency around the call volume, which is typically in the, in the bigger, you know, the populated areas, right. but at least the representation can be spread equally either amongst you know equal on the tax base a property of this amount of money uh, of this value generates this tax across the board or through a funding formula that uh, you know municipalities uh, share that you know uh, accounts for their population accounts for their call volume and accounts for you know some sort of equal pay share something in that, that respect but but either way you're not owned by one municipality and again, that structure can work, but th there still seems to be fighting when that happens. Right. And so what I've seen, at least in, in some areas, is that it's been existing that way in the form of nonprofits. So three municipalities got together and, and their board makes up, you know, the board of this, you know, volunteer ambulance service or volunteer fire department. So some of that does already exist. But there isn't defined tax base going to it. There's just, you know, contract fees of some sort. And the contracted fee typically is minimalistic. It keeps the lights on. You know, it's, it's barely enough to get by. Those agencies aren't, aren't going to survive. They need to get bigger. And rather than being gobbled up in a hostile takeover, more palatably, they should just merge into or, or consolidate, I would rather say, consolidate 
into one bigger agency that's uh, at least they can have their equal say. Okay. And so I think that's the, the growing trend in my industry that seems to be the most palatable. So Tim, you know, you're, we talked about this whole funding mechanism and, and basically how to basically, I guess, get ahead of the problem that you see on the horizon. Okay. Mm-hmm. And we got a lot of city managers and folks who are listening to this podcast and they're probably not super excited about running out and talking to their mayor or the council and say, you know what? I figured out the solution to the problem. We need to create a new taxing district, right? I mean, so one, there has to be some sort of laying the groundwork or foundation for that long-term and start having those kind of conversations, right? And yeah. maybe you want to speak to that or not, but I'm going to throw out a second point as well. So what can, and maybe I'm teeing up your consulting services and so forth and so on, what can a city manager or a department head who's overseeing fire, EMS, so forth and so on, what can they do now? Say, hey, we know there's a problem on the horizon. We see it coming <clears throat> and we see a solution on the horizon, like this is the long-term solution, but what can they do now? What manageable steps can a department or a community take now to start getting out in front and fixing this problem and getting ahead of it? Are there any solutions on that, on the, uh, the more immediate solutions? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and going back to the point I mentioned about, you know, sustainability within my industry comes down to, I think, two root items, which is, uh, again, the, the organizational model and the, the deployment model, the operational model, essentially. You take a small municipal area, you know, large land area with a combined population base of 9,000 people. Their problems are going to be vastly different than a municipality, uh, a city with a population of 100,000 people or, you know, something bigger with 200, 300,000, whatever, you know, totally different problems there. So if if the agency is complaining that they are are struggling, they don't see positivity on the horizon, they can't keep people in. They need more. They, you know, recruitment retention are problems. Uh, so if, if they're complaining about stuff already, the two questions that need to be asked to them is, okay, and, and this isn't has nothing to do with do more with less, but how are you going to do things differently? How, or at least how are you going to do more differently? And there are ways to do that. Uh, so what are you going to change about your operational model that allows efficiency to exist? Uh, or a li- at least allows for you know, all the bases to be covered. And if if you can't operationally change anything, if that doesn't do anything, then you need to look at how you are organized. So if if you're a city of 100,000 people already, you know you've got some struggles here and there. Likely you can change some more some organizational th- or some operational things and, and get ahead of this. If that doesn't work, then you need to start looking at, okay, now as an organization, do we need to do things differently? Should we no longer be a city department? Should we be a county department? Should we be a taxing district? So that's kind of the progression I would take. Okay. Um, so, the, and they may not have to cross that, that boat or, so, or, or that line. So uh, when you get, when you get to the operational side, I mean, I know every, mm-hmm. every situation is going to have its own unique factors and, and whatnot, but can you do some quick hits on yeah. things that you see that are common in your consulting as far as what an, what a department or a community can do to create some operational efficiencies or effectiveness or benefits? Like what are some of the major things that you see in your profession or in your consulting? Yeah. So, you know, one of the hardest pills to swallow for fire departments is that, you know, 80% of their call volume or more in many places is, is EMS oriented. And the amount of actual structure fires, hose line is pulled and charged and, you know, water is sprayed. You know, that's 
2%, of calls, you know, at best. You know, what existed 100 years ago, even 50 years ago, even 25 years ago is vastly different than it is now. And so, you know, the 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 fire side of the thing, the equation is is absolutely they need to be there. They need to exist. The coverage needs to be available and the resources need to be available so that when a call happens that they they're there. So it's not necessarily about you know, it's not about cutting people, but it's using them a bit differently or deploying them differently. You know, if, if you're staffing with a four-person fire engine, okay, do do you need to? Can it be done differently? Or if that four-person fire engine is going Let, to... I got, I got to stop you right there, Tim. I got to yeah. stop you because I hear this all the time as a city administrator or what, four guys on a truck, two in, two out, yeah. yada, 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 right? You got to have yep. four there. Otherwise, you're going to, you know, we know the story, right? Can yeah. you can you get by with less than four firefighters on a truck? Um, on a truck, perhaps. On a scene, no. Okay. So what I would say then, and in some places, again, it comes down to you. You need an outside voice to come in and, and provide some thought and reason for it, and that's where the the value in consulting, I think, is. In, in some situations, that is absolutely what should happen. Does need to exist. Yes. But it doesn't necessarily need to be universal across the department. You know, a, a two-person fire truck, in in many respects, is is not efficient or effective at all. Three is is probably the the bare minimum for most agencies. Now, rural environment, different story. In a bigger city, you know, three, four, okay. With that though, uh, you, you take a medical call, and and in a, a high acuity medical call, you send a fire engine and an ambulance. Okay, I get it. Manpower, people, whatever. Yes. For the majority of other medical calls, though, the, the 90% that aren't high acuity or aren't really emergent, do you need to send that fire apparatus with four people in a half million or a $1.6 million fire apparatus going down the road, getting six to 12 miles per gallon, wear and tear, shocks, salt, whatever, it, it, is it necessary? Could that apparatus instead be split in two and two people go on a pickup truck? and you know go whatever uh so that one of the the, the gripes i always had with the department i worked for was <clears throat> we would send our four-person fire engine on, on a call and then one guy would go and drive the ambulance to the hospital so what happens with that fire truck now well we followed to the hospital leaving our district completely uncovered having our neighboring district you know then reliant on going there we didn't go back because we didn't want to short staff the rig with three right so instead and, the, and we, these guys get back to the station somehow, right? Yeah. So instead, it was a 0% or 100% mentality. And I think the part of the fire service that has to start adjusting now is that 0% and 100% no longer works. You've got to find some way to be 50-50 or maybe even 30-70, you know, in some, in some respects. So is the way that you're deploying then part of the issue? What if you instead didn't have four on this fire truck? And, you know, you had an engine and a ladder company and whatever. What if you changed up, and I'll use the Q word, what if you used a Quint and you staffed it with three? And then you used a, a pickup truck and you called it a squad or something and you had two people on there and they did medical calls. So there are ways to do this. Now, it's going to piss off people. It, it really is. And, and you know, there, there's we always joke or say that, you know, the fire service industry, that there's two things firefighters hate. There's it's change in the way things are. Right. And, and <laughs> I, I had I had someone someone recently say 
so uh, so firefighters are never happy, right? <laughs> yeah. And you know, and I say this with love and respect. I've been a firefighter, you know, ten years career myself, eleven years career. Um, but it, it's not so much change or the way things are that they hate. It's the fear of loss. And so what what needs loss to be of under- what Tim? Loss. Period. Okay. Loss. Loss of staffing. Loss of pay. Loss of this. Loss of that. Anything loss. Okay. There's a fear of loss. And and so what I think needs to happen, especially at the administrative level, is that the the conversation has got to be had with the firefighters, with the ground people, the boots on the ground, to, to ex- explain where we're at, what needs to be changing and why and how involve them in the process. Don't just inform them and tell them what's going to happen. They, they, they need to come to this conclusion themselves that, look, yeah, the, the volumes are different. We can still provide two in, two out. We just have to provide it differently than we than we did it before. Gotcha. Now, now you know, we don't need to lose people. Losing people is not the answer. Taking away from the organization and the numbers and cutting staffing is not the answer. I don't condone that in the least. You still need 20 firefighters, 21 firefighters, you know, on a fire ground to efficiently do operations on a single family, you know, residential structure, undoubtedly. But they can be they can get there differently. And but I you, totally you, get... But here's the thing. You say that, Tim, right? Because mm-hmm. what was that number again? Repeat that. I, I, I heard that a while back, and I want you to repeat that um, because that number shocked me when I heard it from... Well, I'll give you some context. Mm-hmm. Obviously, uh, I was working in a small city. We had a volunteer uh, fire department. Yeah. And we relied on supplemental aid, essentially, mm-hmm. from a neighboring uh, larger jurisdiction. And one of the things that we had a conversation about was the minimum manpower required to fight just a regular residential house fire, right? Mm-hmm. And you said that number was what? Roughly about 2021. 20, I'm thinking the, the the NFPA standard would be uh, uh, 1910 for uh, res, for uh, urban, 1920 for um, more rural oriented. But but yeah, typically it's about you know 19, 20, 21 people. And in my community, Total. we basically had 25 slots for volunteer firefighters. We couldn't mm. even get those 25 slots filled. And good luck trying to get anywhere close to 20 people on a site for a residential fire. Any call. Yeah, yeah. Five, I mean, five people did 80% of the work there. It's crazy. It's it, yeah. it's absolutely crazy. But you know, one of the things I wanted to touch on here, and I, I know you are, are okay with hot takes and having an opinion, so I want to throw this out there, and I mm. might get shot or, or, or something by some disgruntled folks listening to this podcast. I got to tell you, man, do we need to start looking? Okay, I'll just get those out there without any pretext. Do we need to have 24-hour shifts for firefighters as opposed to 10-hour shifts or 12-hour shifts? I mean, what's yeah. the story behind that? Is, there, yeah. is that? is that really beneficial? Yeah, yes and no. So, yes, there, there's an efficiency component to it where you, you, you take staffing, for example. So, you know, 24 hours in a day, seven days in a week. Uh, there's a couple of ways of doing this. One of the ways, the most common way is a 24, so I'm, and I'm talking in the career environment here. In the career environment, 24-hour shift is very, very common. Now, sometimes they do like combinations of 48-hour shifts, you know, but but either way, 24 on, and there's there's different versions of this. One of them is right. called a Chicago, 24 on, 48 off. I worked in California, which was 24 on, 24 off, 24 on, 24 off, 24 on, 48 off, or uh, four days off. So work, you know, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Then you got uh, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday off, and then you repeat the cycle. At any rate, with with those models, and when you work a, a three platoon model, so you have three different shifts, we, we would call it, working 24-hour shifts, 
What that equates to is efficiency as far as the amount of people, the amount of FTEs that you need. Compared to if you work a standard 40-hour work week, which mathematically won't work out, so the best, the, the, the best closest option is 42 hours a week. With that model, it requires, at the very least, four platoons. So now you take something where, okay, let's let's say you have that, that four-person fire engine, and that's what you staff your department as, is, is four people, and you have one fire station. So every day there's four people working. Four people times three shifts is 12, as opposed to four people times four shifts is now 16. So you've got you know a 30% increase in FTEs that are needed. Now, the flip side of that is that the three platoon system, they're working an average of 56 hours per week. FLSA requirements, or at least regulations for firefighters, allow them to work up to 53 hours without overtime, therefore only three hours of overtime, blah, blah. On the other side of the equation, you know, they work 42 hours a week, so different requirements there. So arguably, uh, the, the, the firefighter who is working 40 hours a week might make $50,000 for a salary. The person who's working 56 hours a week is working more hours, obviously. Some of them can be sleeping. And so, you know, it's fair then that they make more than $50,000, that they make 65, you know, whatever that would be, you know, an equivalent side. So from the personnel standpoint, just trying to find that many people, yeah, 24 hours is needed. And heck, I would even say, especially for like when I lived in Colorado, um, it was hard enough to get by living in Colorado Springs, you know, and, and affording the Denver market, whatever, for competition. I can't even imagine how much, you know, it, it costs to live in Breckenridge and Keystone and, you know, stuff in the mountains. People like firefighters and paramedics can't afford to live there. So they've got to drive two and a half hours to get there. Right. So it's very common, especially in Western states, to work in, in you know, California. The same there, too. We're blue collar people. We can't afford to live there. So it's very common to work 48 hours and at least that way you're going there for two days straight then you got four days off it's more palatable gotcha um so so the 24-hour shift and you know rural environments too yes it, it, i think it is still essential and needed the flip side is that when it comes down to uh safety there, there gets to be a tipping point where 24 hours just is not safe now, for the most part, most agencies, most departments, I would bet have a two to one ratio of calls where most of their calls, 60% of their calls, you know, 66% of their calls happen during the daytime hours, let's say 9am to 9pm. 33% of their calls happen between 9pm and 9am. So, all right, do you try to flex your staffing to account for less? You know, you can play that game, but I wouldn't. It's not worth it for the most part. As long as you can still maintain that ratio where the likelihood of someone sleeping at night is still high, then 24-hour shift is, is still fair. Now, if your ambulance crew, for example, you know, if there's no hospital in your community, and so they, they have to drive 40 minutes to, to, to get to the nearest hospital, well, that means they're probably driving 15 minutes to get to the call, spending some time on scene, doing whatever, uh, already then you got 35, 40 minutes have gone by. Now they've got to go drive 45 minutes to the hospital, dilly dally, whatever, 15, 20 minutes, maybe a 30 minute, whatever turnover, and then drive back for that time. So now that two o'clock call turns into, you're not getting back to the station until 4.30. Like you're, you're a bag of shit after a while. 
Yeah. Um, you know, two calls after midnight, I've been there two calls after midnight and you're just, you're kind of useless after a while. So if, if the crews are awake more at night, if they're not able to get, I think six hours is kind of the, the golden, you know, ask of, 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 of straight sleep. But if they're not able to get at least one four hour stretch of sleep at night, it's, it's just, it's not safe anymore. It really isn't especially with longer transport or commute times. So then departments and communities, you know, if, if we're going to say that we're, you know, putting our, our, our morals on, on safety and we're a safe department and blah, blah, blah. If you're actually going to stand up for that, then you owe it to everyone at that point to question whether 24 hour shifts are safe. And, and if they're not, then you probably should switch to 12 hour shifts. So it just, yeah, so that, you, that's so, just the way it goes. So the notion, though, that's out there that some people believe or adhere to that getting rid of twenty-four hour shifts would actually save taxpayers money. You don't no. buy into that. That's not that's not a fair assessment at all. No, I I, I wouldn't say so. And and even when I've looked at it for for other departments analyzing that because we, we we do do that with with my consultancy, you know, looking at not only the pay but the the workload and the amount of people. Uh, Typically, the 24-hour the shift structure with that three-platoon model is, is the most efficient way to go. 24-hour shifts with four platoons, you know, that happens too. But again, that just comes down to more FTEs. And, and you know, even though you might, you might save on the salary side, well, you're still getting, you know, paying for benefits and fringe and all the other stuff to go with it, plus the amount of equipment, you know, the 2500 bucks for turnout gear. And this equipment, that equipment, you know, all that stuff adds up. So, so the the cost then typically is higher per person when when it comes down to it. When you when you're looking at those multiple shifts, yeah, twenty four hour shift, three platoon is is the most efficient model in most ninety something percent situations. Okay, well, just for the record, I think I had a police officer slip me a twenty to ask me that ask that yeah. question because you know all my police officer buddies don't like the fact that firefighters get paid while they're sleeping. So uh, that's for all the police officers out there. I guess tough luck, guys. Yeah, I'm not well, and, get a and, break from Tim on that one. No, and 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 there's there there is an option to pay less during sleep hours. FLSA allows that, but then when they have to wake up. And, and actually perform and work, then you have to pay them overtime or more. So trying to pay, trying to play that game and just do the math of it, whoever is the accountant or the, the finance person and does payroll, that would just be a God awful nightmare. And, and it's so much cleaner just to flat out pay them an hour per hour uh, across the board. So gotcha. I, I wouldn't even play that game. And, gotcha. and for, for people that, you know, it, it's a dissuasion tool. It, if I had a choice between a place that just paid me flat Versus a place that, you know, paid me less to sleep. But when I woke up, I got overtime, whatever. I wouldn't go there. Yeah. Okay. Well, hey, we're over the uh, we're over the hour mark here. So I, I want to hit a couple of quick hits on this. So was there any yeah. other points you wanted to hit on the operational uh, efficiencies? We talked about uh, basically how how the uh, we deliver our service, right? And mm-hmm. different different structures. Is there anything else on that front you might want to touch on? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is that you know some of those parts it, they are going to play a difference between the types of departments. So so what might universally be a solution over here may not be over there. So that's that's the part, and, and you know that's where I do highly recommend not just to bring business my side, but but you got to bring in a consultant, a, a fire and EMS consultant specifically to handle that. Someone who 
works the, the who has worked the job knows the job because you know no offense to other generalist consultants out there or workforce specialists whatever whatever uh, if in unless that person has been in the industry the fire chief the the, the department the ems agency the the, the people aren't going to give two shits about them so it, you mean they're, they're not going to buy in right you mean yeah. they're not going to buy into the recommendation and they're just not right? you know that person that consultant just is not going to understand the type of people that they're dealing with, the mentality, the work, the everything. They're just, they're not going to understand it. So you've got to have a fire and EMS specific consultant, someone who has been in the industry, walked in the shoes uh, to, to be there and, and provide this. Without that, they're just not going to have the respect and you're probably not going to get your money's worth out of them. And, and that's, you know, right, right, rightfully so. I have zero experience in the police, you know, law enforcement world. So I am not the right person for that type of consulting. Right. Uh, but fire and EMS, a- absolutely. They're not all the same. So the, the solutions that are out there, yeah, they are a bit different. And, and it really takes understanding the data behind the organization, but not only the data, but the, the context. There's there's history that's there. There's traditions that, that's there. Some of that has to be abandoned. But then some of it also has to be expanded upon and maintained. And knowing the difference between the two is the key. And that's where, again, that, that fire or EMS specific consultant uh, is there. Uh, in, in, in many respects, you know, a lot of the fire chiefs, EMS chiefs or directors, you know, have a lot of the solutions or a lot of great ideas. Sometimes, no offense to the city managers, they just need the damn city manager to listen to them. Right. Um, so, so you know, part no, of Fair my, enough. Yeah. You I mean, know, part of, well, actually, you know, actually, that kind of d- 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 I guess dovetails into the last set of questions I was going to ask you, Tim, mm-hmm. and that is, you know, we got city managers listening and we got mm-hmm. elected officials listening. I guess that maybe is your, your, my takeaway for the city managers. What advice would you give to city managers listening to this podcast? One, I guess on a individual micro level, right? Community specific, department specific, mm-hmm. what recommendations would you give those city managers to listen to? as far as moving forward and on the macro larger picture, as far as the crisis, impending crisis, uh, collapse of EMS, what advice would you give to city managers listening to this podcast? Yeah. You know, the biggest things I would say is that this absolutely is a local problem and, and you being local uh, officials in some respect, uh, this is your problem and, and it's not going to get fixed unless you're involved with it. Uh, even if you're already, you know, you're only contracting with the nonprofit, whatever fire department, volunteer, EMS agency, whatever. Uh, if if you're not stepping in to provide some sort of funding uh, for that service, uh, more than likely they're they're not going to be able to succeed. Certainly not thrive on their own. It, it's just the likelihood of that happening. Some places, very very few and far between, are getting by, but most are not. So you, you're going to be involved in some form or way. And that same respect, you know, you're, you're contracting for a service. So you are absolutely owed what you're getting and what you're paying for. Um, if, if, if you are expected to have a functioning volunteer fire department where people, you know, respond, then ask. You, you are well in your right to get the numbers. Uh, ask for the data on what does this look like? What is your turnout time? How many people show up? get the information. How many of them are actually compliant and don't have facial hair <laughs> um, for volunteer firefighters, especially? So how many people, you know, can can actually structurally firefight and are, and are qualified for this? Uh, so get the information that you need. You you deserve to have that and your citizens deserve to, to know it. And I think that's the, the biggest point right now is many areas, especially rural, are, are at this 
crisis collapsing point where transparency is needed. And many citizens, I don't feel, understand or, or know or have even heard that there is this issue and they need to hear it. If, if this is the first time on this podcast that you're hearing that EMS agencies and fire departments are having troubles, your fire chief, your EMS director, your EMS chief, whoever has failed you because this has been, this should have been talked about years ago. You should have been hearing about this for years. I should only be reinforcing some of the things they're talking about and maybe given a couple of crazy ideas. Uh, but this should not be the first time you're hearing of this. And I guess an extension of that, Tim, if I was going to extend the question or that question to you as far as your advice to the governing body that's might be elected officials might be listening to this podcast, I guess you would say probably, if I'm reading you correctly, that the elected officials need to start doing a better job of communicating this issue to the electorate and start sort of prepping them for this eventual outcome, correct? Yeah. And, and you know, I, I mentioned this to another group, too, that municipalities and, and, and agencies, you, you have the right to fail. You, you have the right, especially if it's not required, like EMS, EMS technically in most states is not even required. Ambulance service is not required. So, so you are well within your right, actually, to, to not even have an ambulance service uh, respond to your agency, to your community. People call 911 and no one will show up. The dispatcher will say, oh, there's, there's no ambulance service assigned to your community. No one is showing up. You have to get in the car and do it yourself. You, you have that right. Now, I don't recommend that. I think yes, that's horrible. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that would be an absolutely horrible thing. Um, but you, you know, in, in the states where it's not essential, you have that right. So you have the right to failure. You also have the, the opportunity and the ability ahead of you to succeed. And, and I think that the, the citizens in your community need to understand what exists and have realistic, realistic expectations for when they call for help, what is actually going to happen? Who is, you know, who is going to show up? How many people are going to show up? Where are they coming from? My community, your community? Just what, what is realistically going to happen? And if we provide this much more money, if, if, if we can do $7 more on my tax bill for $100,000 residents, what does that equate to? Or if we cut $3 uh, per $100,000, you know, assessed value on my house, what does that equate to? So like that, those are the realistic things that need to be talked about because in many of these situations, that's all we're talking about. Or, or even, you know, the difference between a career department and a non-career department might just be $15 per hundred thousand or $25 per hundred thousand dollar assessed value. Well, so if, if I, as, as a taxpayer, you know, can pay $125 or whatever more on my tax bill per year, and I'm going to have this type of service then all right, let me make that decision. Well, I think I think generally speaking is that most people are okay with paying taxes so long as they get a value mm -hmm. for those taxes, right? I think the issue becomes a lot of folks think they're paying taxes and not getting value for it. And so yeah. I guess if you are making the pitch that you're going to get X level of service for this amount of tax money that we're going to you know, tax you, then I think there's going to be, uh, it's going to be okay, right? If there's some transparency there. And I yeah. guess to tee this up for you as we wrap up this episode, Tim, and, and thank you for being on, it probably would behoove these jurisdictions out there who are looking at this and trying to be ahead of the curve who might be saying, hey, we need to put a, you know, a special taxing district or something out there for the voters to weigh in on. They might want to look into tapping into your services to do maybe sort of a full on assessment of the department and the cost model, so forth and so on, so they can get a more comprehensive idea of what that cost would entail to provide a certain level of service. Is that a fair representation of some of the services you provide? A absolutely. And, and you know, again, 
for the most part, a lot of fire chief CMS directors, you know, are, are very capable and have great ideas and, and can give you a lot of the insight and, and solution to what, what's needed. However, the their focus is limited. And, and and appropriately so, they're focused on their department, their one place, and, and so they've got to be in a bit of a narrowed mindset uh, in that role. My focus, however, is much more broad. And I'm able to take not only their department, your community, and, and go specifically there, but also take in everything that I have from my prior experience and my colleagues that we, we, we have, <clears throat> the data on a large scale, and, and really look at the big picture and, and try to identify what will specifically work for you. And that's something that I would say, especially that if, if you're looking to go the consulting route, which I, I, I do recommend, uh, if you're looking to go the the consulting route, you know, for one, pick me, yay, th th that's great. But if you don't, make sure that you are getting customized solutions for your community. You don't want cookie cutter crap. You don't want stuff that is <clears throat> copy pasted between report report. Look at the reports from the from the consulting firms and make sure that they they don't just have copy and pasted solutions here and there because that, that, that does exist in some places, and I'm sure that's every consulting industry period. But look for what did what did they do specifically for this community, or specifically for this department that that was intended to make an impact. And, and that needs to be the focus with your community, with your department, is what are you going to specifically do for us? Understanding the big picture, but what specifically is going to be done for us to, to be different? And, and, and that's where your focus needs to be as a city manager, uh, especially when it comes to you know procurement and, and, and selecting the right firm to work with you. Awesome. Awesome. Well, hey, Tim, we're going to wrap up here before we part. Can you uh, quickly uh, give uh, the audience uh, your contact information, how they can reach out and find you, whether it's LinkedIn, website, your company name, so forth and so on? Yeah, yeah. So th again, thank you very much. This is a great experience. Um, certainly glad to you know uh, continue the conversation with anyone, whether it's uh, formal or informal and just candid and, and off the cuff. So I, I'm Tim Nowak. Uh, best way to find me is, is certainly on LinkedIn. So if you Look up Tim Nowak, or I think my, my handle there is like Tim Nowak EMS. Uh, so you can find me certainly there. Otherwise, I work for a public consulting group, which is a, a national firm, but we work throughout the country. I, I work remotely. I live in Green Bay, Wisconsin, and uh, you know work on projects throughout the country um, with, with, with a great team as well of uh, primarily full-time consultants. So uh, easiest email there at least is, is T-N-O-W-A-K, so T Nowak at pcgus.com uh, and we can certainly uh, you know share that on on LinkedIn as well but uh, that, that's a great way to find me and just ask questions you know whether it's of me or it's your chiefs ask questions have some uncomfortable conversations because uh, that's really where we're at is is uh, the only way we're gonna fix the problems that are facing us is if we talk about the uncomfortable things uh, without doing that it's it, nothing's gonna nothing's gonna happen Awesome. Awesome. Great stuff, Tim. Tim Nowak, uh, he's a, our EMS expert. 
Excellent stuff, Tim. Thank you very much for uh, being on the podcast. You are my resident EMS expert. I've been following you for a long time. You have great content on LinkedIn. I would encourage anyone listening to this podcast who has some questions or wants some consulting work done to uh, look you up and and give you some consideration. Uh, Thank you for being on the show. Until next time, folks, if you uh, enjoy the podcast, please hit the like and follow button, the subscribe button. Please uh, do a rate and review. I would appreciate all the help trying to get to 200 uh, podcast uh, ratings and reviews on Apple. Uh, So I greatly appreciate that. And uh, catch the next episode. I am Joe Turner. I am the host of City Manager Unfiltered, a podcast for city managers and other public sector executives. And until next time, thank you. Bye-bye.